out there as we were going through the actual conference day. So this is really supposed to be a very general introduction to HCV management. So for those of you who currently do a lot of that, it's going to be probably quite a bit of review. Um, but it's really for those of you who don't do a lot of HCV management to bring you up to speed so that as we move into the conference day um, and we're going through some of the trials and the clinical outcomes and the virologic um, you know, response uh, guidance therapies and things like that, that this sort of terminology is, is a little bit easier for you to follow. Um, so uh, so it, it is more of a didactic. This is not going to be very interactive because it's really just to try to get, get you up to speed. But certainly, if questions arise, um, you know, feel free to raise your hand and shout out if, uh, if I say something that doesn't make sense or if you have a question that's related to what I'm talking about. So <clears throat> I think we'll go ahead and get started. So the primary objectives that I had were to cover some very basic epidemiology. Dr. Ward's going to give a fantastic epi talk, and so I'm not going to try to compete with that by any means. But just a general introduction, and a general introduction to the virus itself and specifically to the targets and, and what um, proteins or enzymes that, that are the current targets of HCV therapy. I wanted to quickly review viral kinetic markers because this becomes critically important if you're treating with telapavir or bosepravir. Um, and then get into some just basic um, standard of care, prior standard of care, PEG-RIBA, what were the previous cure rates, what were the response rates, what were some of the baseline predictors, that sort of thing. Talk about the phase two studies, because you're not going to hear about any of the phase two studies. But there's a couple of things that we learned from phase two that are very important as we moved into phase three. Um, and then quickly wanted to touch on some of the pharmacogenomic discoveries that were very exciting several years ago, and whether or not um, they will play any role whatsoever as we move forward in clinical management. Um, so, uh, so we'll go ahead and get started. So I think some of this epi is no surprise to any of you, because you're all ID providers, I suspect, or most of you are. But um, HCV is a very prevalent infection worldwide. And in this country, it affects about one and a half to almost 2% of our population, meaning there's, a, there's an estimated 3 to 4 million infected people in this country. And I think as many of you know, most of those people do not know they're infected. Um, it is a virus that uh, comes as multiple genotypes. And we know that those genotypes do matter when it comes to predicting responses to therapy at least to our previous piglet interferon and ribavirin-based therapies, with genotype 1 and 4 being very poor responders. And obviously, the population, the MSM population. So in our HIV practices, it's critically important to understand the evolving epidemiology of acute hepatitis C. And again, as we mentioned, it's really probably somewhere closer to 75% of people with this virus do not know they're infected. And it contributes currently to about 10,000 deaths per year. But I'm going to show you some, some other slides that predict that this number is going to dramatically increase as the primary population with the infection, aka the baby boomers, age. So I think this is a really, really important slide, which shows, again, that 1.6% prevalence of HCV in this country, but shows that the burden of this infection is primarily carried by specific groups of patients. One are the baby boomer population, so those patients born between 1945 and 65. And as you know, the CDC has now recommended that every patient born between these years has one lifetime HCV screening test to ensure that they're not one of those patients that are infected, given that there's a three to four-fold higher risk that they will have chronic infection. 
And then if you move this forward, patients of African descent and men, specifically men of African descent, carry a huge burden with regards to this infection. And therefore, it's very, under, very important to understand those risk factors. And I think the primary reason that the CDC chose this birth cohort was because it had the best chance of capturing these highest risk, risk patients and identifying their infection so that we can get them into care. So the natural history of this disease is that it does occur as an acute hepatitis infection, but as most of you know, many patients never have symptoms and usually do not present to care in the acute setting. Um, most acute infections are diagnosed because of elevated liver enzymes, which primarily would be done if someone's actually having lab tests being followed, which is why we do often detect acute infection in our HIV-infected patients because we're monitoring their labs on a relatively regular basis. As you know, most patients who are exposed to this virus will go on to develop chronic infection. Um, and those numbers vary. You know, if you have HIV first, it's likely that your chance of spontaneously clearing this virus naturally is significantly lower than if you contract HCV first. Um, and of those patients who develop chronic infection, 20% about will go on to develop cirrhosis. Now, this is in a hep C mono-infected uh, cohort. So if you were to, you know, extrapolate this to the HIV co-infected cohort, we recognize that our HIV-infected patients with HCV have about a 70% increased risk of developing cirrhosis as compared to their HCV mono-infected counterparts. So this number, I usually tell my patients, is closer to 50% if you have HIV co-infection. And that's very important to understand. We also should mention that alcohol is another huge risk factor that we know is very prominent in our HIV-infected patients and is one of the primary things that we can do when diagnosing this chronic HCV infection is to educate our patients that alcohol significantly increases their risk of developing scar and fibrosis. So this is what I was alluding to. So if you look at several models have now been done predicting what will come if we do not identify patients with this infection and attempt to get them therapy. And that is, by the year 2030, we will have a significant increase in cases of decompensated cirrhosis, which would require liver transplant if that patient were to survive, as well as a huge increase, although the, you know, on this scale it doesn't look so, but if you have hepatocellular carcinoma, that's a very large increase in these patients. And so most of these people do not know they even have the virus, much less the associated liver disease. So I want to quickly turn to the virus now um, to, to just talk about the fact that this is a virus that we can cure, and that is something that's very nice to be able to say. Uh, we do feel that this is a virus that can be completely eradicated from the human body, and that's very important when we think about other viruses like hepatitis B or hepatitis or, or HIV, where that really is not the case. Um, the main reason we believe for this is that there is no internuclear phase, as you would have in HIV, which integrates, or with HBV, which has that CCC DNA that sits inside the nucleus. Um, and we're going to focus on some of these proteins that are part of the RNA genome um, that actually are the sites of action for the direct-acting antivirals. I think that leads me to my next slide. So if we look at the HCV genome and ultimately the proteins that come from that genome, um, we have the structural proteins that form the virus and the viral capsid itself, but then we have these non-structural or NS proteins. And these are the primary proteins that are the current site of action for the direct-acting antivirals. Specifically, as of now, in phase two and phase three study, we have the NS34A protease inhibitors, which are bocepivir and telaprevir, currently FDA approved. Um, we have several what we call second wave protease inhibitors, um, TMC435, VI has a protease inhibitor that are now in phase three study. 
And then also second generation protease inhibitors that are coming through phase two study, which means, as I think all of you probably get very quickly from the HIV standpoint, that we will have hopefully different profiles because resistance plays a huge role in the management of this disease as well. So we know that early for a protease inhibitors and monotherapy patients, almost all patients immediately suppress virus and they all almost immediately develop resistance as well. And so we have to use these drugs in combination or with some sort of backbone, um, which initially was PEG and RIBA because there were no other drugs to combine. But now that we have more DAAs, we can, instead of using PEG and RIBA as a backbone, we can use other DAAs as a backbone, ultimately to move forward to an all-oral interferon-sparing combination, which we, you will see plenty of evidence for um, at later in the day. So these are highly potent. The NS34A protease inhibitors are highly potent, but have very little resistance. So clearly, I think, will play a role as a combination in a combination uh, therapy, but will never, I think, ultimately be uh, a monotherapy. The NS5A is an interesting protein in that it has no known enzymatic activity. We don't know what it does. We know that it's part of that replication complex that I showed you in the cytoplasm, um, but that if you block it, it is a highly potent inhibitor of viral replication. Um, and so we don't really need to know what it does. We just need to know how to stop it. Um, and these are actually a very exciting class of drugs. Again, quite potent, but also a relatively low barrier to resistance. So I think a critical drug is a combination, but still is going to need some sort of a backbone drug that does not have a high risk of developing resistance. And I think NS5B, RNA-dependent uh, RNA polymerase uh, inhibitors come in, specifically the nukes. So we have nukes and non-nukes. It's a very similar story to HIV. But what we have found is that the non-nukes um, have limited potency and also have relatively low barriers to resistance. Um, NS5B nukes, we have found, especially with one nuke in particular that will be FDA approved probably within the next year to year and a half, has a very high barrier to resistance, moderate to high potency. And as of yet, there's not been a single patient that's been dosed with this drug that's developed resistance. And so it looks to be, as a class of drugs, hopefully, um, a very nice backbone to combine uh, other drugs that are highly potent but have lower barriers to resistance. Um, I will mention that initially these drugs, so like bisoprovintilaprevir, primarily are active against genotype 1. But as we move forward, we are finding that even the protease inhibitors can be pan-genotypic. Okay? So there's some activity for 2 with bisoprovintilaprevir, but no activity for genotype 3. But as we see TMC-435 moving forward as a protease inhibitor, we have pan-genotypic um, the NS5A's pan-genotypic activity, the NS5B's pan-genotypic activity, the nukes. The non-nukes are not that case because they do not bind to the catalytic site. Um, so this is very exciting because it's not just our genotype 1 patients that will benefit, but ultimately patients with all genotypes, which are, is critically important as we talk about reaching out to resource-limited settings in other countries. So this is where I wanted to review viral kinetics because um, it is as confusing as this slide would appear. So, so we'll take one step back and talk about people that were enrolled in studies as prior, uh, you know, prior exposure to PEG and RIBA. So prior exposure to, to the previous standard of care. We have a couple of definitions that are very, very important. So one is the null responder population. So these are people who were exposed to PEG and RIBA, but by week 12, they did not have a greater than two log decline in viral load. Um, we don't really talk about two-log declines anymore. It's not relevant, because if your drug can't cause a two-log decline by week 12, then you're in trouble. Um, but that is how we define this population. That becomes critically important when you look at the fact that some of these patients don't respond as well, even to interferon sparing. Okay? So less than two-log decline, minimal response, those patients on previous therapies would have been discontinued by week 12. 
We have partial responders. These are patients who on PEG and RIBA by week 12 had a greater than two log decline, but by week 24 they did not suppress and would have discontinued therapy by previous futility or stopping rules at week 24. Um, and, and you'll find that these patients actually have different responses to triple combination therapy, which makes sense because interferon is still part of that regimen, and clearly these patients respond differently to interferon. When then we have relapse patients, and these are patients in green who rapidly suppressed, remain suppressed while on therapy, but as soon as therapy comes off, within three months, they rebound. And those are patients that are considered relapsers, and those patients have excellent response rates to triple combination therapies and ultimately moving forward likely to all other combinations of therapies. And, and really, as many of us felt as we were moving into treatment um, with triple combination therapies, this, these patients were the low-hanging fruit. Um, they responded extremely well. They had very rapid re response rates, and so it was nice to treat some of those patients and feel good about what, what you were doing, as opposed to battling it out with a null responder who wasn't going to necessarily do as well, but was going to go through a lot of adverse events in the meantime. So does that make sense for everyone? So now just moving into actual virologic responses and how we can use those virologic responses to help us make decisions on whether patients need prolonged courses of therapy. Um, and I'm going to show you some of the original data from the IDEAL study that actually led to the idea that we could identify patients based on their on-treatment virologic responses to know whether or not they needed a longer course of therapy or could maybe be shortened in terms of their course of therapy. And we were doing something already with PEG and RIBA, but it became critical and part of the standard of care for triple combination therapies. And what you're going to find as we move into interferon sparing, response-guided therapy is going away. And I will show you some of, I think the main reason for that is the complexity. It becomes extremely confusing when you're using some of these numbers and for different drugs it was different time points, which is what I'm going to go through with you today. Um, and so I think that we're moving back to the idea of let's just treat everyone for 12 weeks. Um, and that's, a, I think, ultimately to make it as simple as possible is important for providers as well as for patients. So if we talk about virologic kinetic marks, we, I'm, I'm going to really focus on these two things because the, um, we used to have the, the, uh, the EVR, which was early virologic response, and this was at week 12, but we really aren't going to use that anymore as we move forward because most patients on these highly potent drugs are, are suppressed by week two or week four. Um, so we look at rapid virologic response, and this is an undetectable viral load by week four. Um, we then put a little E in front of it and call it an extended rapid virologic response if you suppress by week four and remain suppressed. And this ERVR is the term that we use to determine response-guided therapy with triple combinations um, with PEG, I mean with uh, bosupravir or telaprevir. And I'm going to review with you, with you that those time points are slightly different, um, and we'll talk about why. We also have something now called the V, little v, RVR, the very rapid virologic response, which is an undetectable viral load by week two. And this may become important as we move into uh, to, uh, interferon sparing regimens, but I want you to know that because you, you may hear some of this as we move forward, and, um, and, it, and it can be extremely confusing. And then, of course, the most important is this SVR, sustained virologic response, an undetectable viral load 24 weeks after discontinuing therapy. This is what we call a cure. Um, and this, and I will, as the last few slides of the talk will show you, is very important when it comes to decreased rates of clinical outcomes with liver disease in patients who have developed significant fibrosis during the course of their infection. Um, what's also important to note is that the FDA previously required an SVR24 as an endpoint for these, there, for these trials, and now an SVR12 is actually the defined um, endpoint for these trials because Going back to things like the IDEAL study, which I will show you a little bit about, but was the, the huge study published in the New England Journal comparing interferon alpha-2A versus 2B, showing that an SVR12 equals an SVR24. 
So if you've got a time point that can move everything forward, that can make you then finish your trials earlier and get access to these drugs for our patients quicker, then it's important. And so we actually now really, when we talk about SVR12, I mean SVR, we're talking about an SVR12 as we move forward with the, the newer trials. Okay, so any questions about that section? Nope? Okay, great. I talk faster as I drink more coffee, so I'm trying to, uh, <laughs> trying to, to not drink. All right, so let's just, so now this is, the point of this is just to talk about the outcomes with, with, with standard of care, previous standard of care, which is PEG and RIVA. And, and this is probably review for most of you. But if we look, so in green are genotype 2, 3s, people, pa patients that we always knew responded very well to PEG and RIVA, and currently the standard of care for a genotype 2, 3 is still PEG and RIVA, okay? 24 to 48 weeks, depending on whether your patient is co-infected and, and, and what their virologic kinetics are. Um, for genotype 1s, Cure rates, and, and I would argue from the ideal study, which was probably the largest study, were about 40%. So we already knew there was a disparity between <laughs> response rates to PEG and RIBA with genotype 1 versus genotype 2-3, and that indeed our genotype 1 patients required a longer course of therapy. So the, the shortest you'd go was 48 weeks, and some people were even going 72 weeks if a patient was not undetectable by week 12, which was essentially like torture for patients, and I think very few patients could get through that because it was very, very difficult. Um, and then if we talk about the fact that th those were all comers, but if you really start to break this down by baseline predictors, you find that there are specific groups of patients who had poor response rates. So if you look at patients of European descent, they hit that 40% mark that we use to quote patients. And I would usually quote patients that, who are co-infected with a 15 to 20% cure rate. But patients of African descent, patients of Latino descent, appear to have poorer responses to PEG and ribotherapies we now understand at least 50% of why that is, and that's part of the pharmacogenomics that I'll talk about at the end of the talk. And we also found that patients of Asian descent actually had better response rates. And ultimately, again, we know that this was defined by a single um, you know, nucleotide base pair change in that person's DNA. And then if we talk about HIV-infected patients, again, genotype 2-3 in uh, gold and in red, genotype 1s, if we really look at the cohort that was on here in the United States, which is the ACTG study, because the rest of these are European studies where we know the IL-28 polymorphism is more prevalent, um, you see that our cure rates for a co-infected patient with pagan riba was 15%. It's pretty hard to have a discussion with a patient and convince them to go on a year of therapy when that's their chance of cure. <coughs> so other baseline predictors, and this is with PEG and RIBA, and you'll find as our therapies with DAAs become more and more potent, um, and have higher and higher cure rates, these things become less important. And you'll see a very exciting study that will be presented at AASLD in a couple weeks that essentially offers a 95 to 100% chance of cure for genotype 1 patients, interferon sparing. So it's pretty hard to hash out who that 5% was that didn't respond. It's unlikely you're going to find any predictor that is, is worthwhile. So previously, though, we knew that low viral loads, less fibrosis, um, younger age, female gender, patients who were not African descent, Lower body weight, patients who did not have insulin resistance or obesity, patients who did not have hepatic steatosis had better response rates. And again, this is the data behind the idea of using response-guided therapy, being able to use virologic predictors to know whether patients could be shortened on treatment. And this is from the ideal study showing that, that if you were undetectable early on, that you had a higher chance of cure. If it took you 24 weeks to become undetectable, those, you know, those patients who had a greater than two log decline and then finally were undetectable 24 weeks later, they had much lower chances of cure. And so this was important for us, and many of us, again, were using this um, before uh, the, the, uh, the DAAs came along. 
And then we can get into adverse events. I know that you know the limitations to PEG and RIBA were one, poor response rates, two, long courses of therapy, and three, significant adverse events. I think what we would argue is that with the, the first FDA-approved DAAs, they improve response rates. For half of our patients, they shortened the course of therapy, but they added to this profile. And you'll see some of that later today. Um, so I think the big things to focus on are anemia. So 34% of patients on PEG and RIBA develop significant anemia. And I think this is an important number, too. With PEG and RIBA alone, 30% essentially developed rash. And I think that is something that we didn't really think about too much until we added on these DAAs and started seeing a lot of rash. Um, but that, that indeed PEG and RIBA alone can cause some pretty significant rash. And then the last thing I wanted to mention was acute HCV. So standard of care for acute hep C continues to be PEG and RIBA. We've always known that if we identified patients early, we had a better chance of curing them, and we could cure them with 24 weeks of therapy if they were a genotype 1. So the whole was if you could identify an acute patient, that was great because you had a much better chance of response in a shorter time with PEG and RIBA. So this continues to be the standard of care. And if you see here, it's actually a really nice meta-analysis that was done. These are in, these are in HCV mono-infected patients. Um, but in patients who are identified with acute HCV and, and, and treated within 12 weeks of their diagnosis, you can achieve a cure rate as high as 80%. Now, some of these patients would have gone on to spontaneously clear the virus, right? Um, and that part of the drop-off, I think, that you see here in that 12 to 24-week period is patients who probably would have spontaneously cleared. But so most of us, in, in most studies now, if they're going to include you know, an acute patient, they're going to say, give them three months to spontaneously clear. If their viral load hasn't dropped by two log, then they're not going to spontaneously clear. And you should get them on PEG and RIBA treatment if indeed you believe that they're a candidate for therapy at that time. Um, and, so that, and so we're looking at cure rates of 60 to 70%. And this holds true in an HIV-infected patient, um, which is very, very nice. So again, standard of care for acute HCV continues to be PEG and RIBA therapies at this time. But there are already protocols being developed to look at DAAs for acute therapy. Um, as you know, the hardest part is identifying these patients because they, most of them don't present to medical care. And then the last uh, thing to talk about with the DAAs, which I think is also very interesting um, from a historical perspective, if nothing else, is why did it take so long to get here? So if you think about HIV, um, HIV, the virus, was identified in 1984. And the first direct acting antiretroviral was FDA approved three years later. If you look at HCV, the virus itself, non-A, non-B, identified as hepatitis C in 1989, and it isn't until now, 2011, that the first DAA for HCV was approved. And that was in large part driven by the science and the inability to actually grow HCV in the laboratory. And it wasn't until the replicon system was established in almost 2000 that they were able to even look at some of these proteins. And the actual first virus where you could actually see full replication didn't occur until 2005 with the fulminate Japanese hepatitis virus strain. So it, it shows you how... Science is very, very important. And being able to do these things in the labs were critically important. And we still lack uh, an animal model for HCV to do a good pathogenesis research. OK, so any questions there with regards to the virus, with regards to prior standard of care, and where we are moving to now? All right. So phase two studies, um, and there, these are only really, I think, a couple of slides. Um, but the, the reason I wanted to put this in is there's a couple of things that if we, if you move into the day for the conference, we would just breeze through presuming that this was, you know, common knowledge at this point. So what we're looking at here are the SPRINT and the PROVE studies for bosepravir and telaprovir. 
um, for the phase two programs, making decisions on how to move forward for the phase threes. And there are a couple things I want to point out. So what we see here on the left panel is the treatments, the treatments that were studied. And then on the right panel were the actual response rates, SVR rates. Okay. Um, so if we look at the Bisepravir study, there's a couple things. So in green is Peg and Riba. Um, in red is triple combination therapies. So there are a couple things to show you here. One, these little green bars um, are called lead-in phase. So with Bosepravir, they decided to study something called a lead-in phase. This was giving patients PEG and Riba for four weeks prior to initiating the direct-acting antiviral. The theory was that this would drop the viral load and you would have lower rates of resistance. And what they actually found was if you look, if you compare, it's most obvious in this group who got 48 weeks of treatment total, if you compare response rates, there appeared to be some benefit to the lead-in phase. And so this moved forward into their phase three program and is the way that you manage patients when using bosepravir, is everyone gets four weeks of pagan riba first and then you initiate the DAA. Um, so that's number one. Number two is if you look at tw 28 weeks of treatment versus 48 weeks of treatment, there appeared to be a clear difference. Um, and this is where response-guided therapy came in. That some patients could do very well, obviously, with 24 weeks or 28 weeks, but some, patient needed, some patients needed a year. And how do you make that decision on who needed what? And that's where we use viral kinetics to make that decision. Um, if we look at the phase twos for telaprevir, the PROVE studies, I think there's a couple things to look at. So one is there's no lead-in. Two is this little bar right here. So the European part of this study attempted to use ribavirin sparing. This was, they thought, well, if we've got this highly potent direct-acting antiviral, we've got interferon to be part of our backbone to decrease resistance, why do we even need ribavirin? Can we get rid of this drug? Because it causes pretty significant adverse events with the anemia. And as you can see here, that arm of 12 weeks of telaprevir and PEG did worse than the standard of care arm, um, which was very interesting. And this is why ribavirin remains today even in many of our interferon sparing combinations uh, because it was very clear that patients needed ribavirin. And what we found was that what did the ribavirin do? It decreased rates of, of breakthrough and resistance. You know, we still don't truly understand the mechanism of ribavirin in HCV treatment, but again, it's kind of like the NS5A. You know, we don't understand it, but we know we need it. And it's not going anywhere anytime soon. I think what's very interesting, though, is as we start having more and more data of ribavirin in combinations with DAAs and not with interferon, is seeing how severe the anemia really is when you don't have interferon, which suppresses your bone marrow. So when you actually have the ability to respond to the hemolytic anemia, do you actually indeed have less anemia? And that's something that we're learning as we move forward, and actually is very important to consider ribavirin when it's not partnered up with uh, paleo interferon. Um, so that's number one. And then number two was actually looking at the difference here is that telaprevir is 12 weeks. So regardless of how much pagan riba you get, you always get 12 weeks of telaprevir. It's always in the beginning. And then you finish up with pagan riba or mop up with pagan riba, depending on what your, your viral kinetics and responses are. I think what's also very, very interesting here is this is the European cohort. This is the American cohort. 12 weeks of triple combination therapy, 60% cure. 12 weeks of triple combination therapy, 35% chance of cure. So what this also showed us was some patients could be cured with this combination in 12 weeks. Who were they? And now we know that those patients were IL-28CC patients. And I'm going to explain to you what that means. But they, they are now doing studies in this population with other drugs to try to cure them in six weeks. 
Um, and I suspect that's probably going to be possible, at least with interferon as part of that regimen. So this is where you also get into the idea of patient-tailored therapies um, and, and using some of these baseline markers, especially the genetic decisions on who needs six weeks, who needs 12, who needs 24. 24 may even be too long as we move into these more um, potent regimens. So any questions? I think those are the main points that I wanted to make. Are there any questions about the phase two studies? No? Okay. So in summary, um, for telaprevir, it was, it was obvious as well, I guess I didn't point that out, that response to therapy was, was, was going to be important, that some patients needed 24 weeks, needed 48. This was the same for um, basipavir, so response-guided therapy is the standard of care with these drugs. Um, with telapavir, you use triple combinations for tw the first 12 weeks, and then you add on you know, 12 to 36 weeks, depending on response um, in viral kinetics, and that ribavirin remains part of that triple combination. For basipavir, there's a lead-in phase. That is required um, per the uh, package insert in the phase three studies. Again, response-guided therapy. Triple combination therapy is anywhere from 24 to 48, 44 weeks. Um, and ribavirin is included. So this is where the fun begins. Uh, and this is where it just gets, I think, extremely confusing. And I want to take time, and I think I have time, to review this. And certainly, if you guys have questions, if this is not clear, just let me know. Um, so this is, we're going to start off with telaprevir. This is actually a fantastic review that was done in gastroenterology. Um, and, that, and so I pulled these figures because I think they're extremely helpful. So the top panel is looking at response-guided therapy. Um, so the idea with telaprevir, peg, and riba is that this, remember the little e, RBR, extended rapid virologic response? So if you are undetectable by week four and you remain undetectable by week 12, then you discontinue therapy at 24 weeks, okay? 12 weeks of triple followed by 12 weeks of peg, riba, and you are done. If you, however, do not meet this criteria, okay, so that you have a viral load that is, you know, 800 at week four, then you would need to continue on therapy for a full 48 weeks, 12 weeks of triple, 36 weeks of pagan riba. Does that make sense? Um, and generally speaking, so if we then go to the stopping rules, which is also relatively relevant here. You know, before futility rules for pagan riba, as I said, was 12 weeks. If you did not have a greater than two log decline by week 12, you discontinued therapy. So what's really nice about this is that the sooner you can identify a patient who's not going to respond, the better. Because you don't have to continue these drugs on those patients, increase their risk of going through adverse events for no reason, and because these drugs are extremely expensive. Okay, So $50,000 just for the telaprevir for this, plus the 25 grand it costs for pagan rivals. $75,000 for these treatments. Um, and so if you can stop at week four and not go eight more weeks to week 12 or you know the number of weeks to week 24, that's really important from a, from a um, from a financial standpoint as well. So stopping rules for telaprevir, if your viral load is over 1,000 by week four, you stop. Um, that is primarily because your risk of resistance is also very, very high at this point. If you haven't suppressed on this highly, highly potent drug by week four, your risk of resistance is very high um, and virologic breakthrough. So you would discontinue. By week 12, it's the same. Although I would argue that I've not ever had a patient who's had to meet that criteria because they're all suppressed by week four four to week eight. I think what's also important to understand is that when patients are going to break through, they're going to break through before week 12. So what I try to, to argue for if you're treating these patients currently is if your patient has a, has a viral load at week four of 600, I would not recommend waiting to week 12 to recheck their viral load. 
Okay, and but the problem is the package insert says just check, check at week four and check at week twelve. The problem is, is that patient is, I think, already going to be identified as a slow responder and therefore has a higher risk of resistance. So I would argue that this patient needs viral loads every two weeks until they're suppressed. Uh, otherwise, you're going to have them having virologic rebound, having resistance, and continuing to develop con compensatory mutations, which we know happens, uh, just like in HIV. Um, and you're going to hear a little bit about resistance, but we don't know what that means in the long run. But what we do know is that some of these mutants can last for up to 18 months, which without a doubt means that if you have a patient who has resistance, and they still have a resistant mutant, what you're not going to be able to do is give them an all oral, a direct acting oral combination that includes a PI, which most of the combinations are going to include, and you're at least not for 18 months to two years. And so this is important, and I think something that we really need to pay attention to, but that I don't think is addressed in the actual package inserts. Does that make sense, everyone? All right, so now let's turn to bisepravir, which is different. And so and if you're using both of these drugs, it can be extremely confusing to try to remember which one is which. So for bosepiravir, because of that lead-in phase, your ERVR criteria are different. Um, so we, they, we use a, a time point of eight weeks. So you have to be undetectable by week eight and remain undetectable up to week 24. As opposed to four and 12, it's eight and 24. So it's a, it's a little bit confusing. Um, but ultimately, if you're a naive patient um, and you achieve this criteria, then you would stop at week 28. If you're not naive, and this is where it gets really confusing, if you're not naive, then you actually continue your, your triple combinations to 36 weeks, and then you mop up with uh, 12 weeks of pagan riba. So, wow, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's different. So then you've got 12, weekend, you know, 12 weeks versus 24 weeks versus 36 weeks versus 48 weeks. And so my general advice is, as you're treating these patients, is, is keep this handy little thing at your bedside or in your pocket so that you can remind yourself of what these endpoints are, because I think otherwise it gets extremely confusing. Like I said, as we move forward, I think it actually becomes much less complex. Um, but, but this is what, if you're treating patients clinically now, this is what you're doing if you're not you know, using, treating patients in clinical trials. And again, the stopping or fertility rules are different. And, and, and so this, for most of it's a little bit more like PEG and RIBA, where you have a 12-week stopping rule and a 24-week. By week 12, though, you, it's no longer this two log 10 decline, right? It, you have to be, have a viral load of less than or equal to 100 which essentially means you mean to be almost undetectable. And again, I would argue that if your patient has a viral load of 84, you are not going to wait 12 more weeks to recheck their viral load and make sure they're undetectable. You're going to repeat their viral load two weeks later and then two weeks later. And I've actually had a number of patients on Bosepravir who are less than the lower limit of quantification but not undetectable. So, you know, less than 43 but detected, less than 43 but detected in every two weeks. And it's taken some of my patients eight weeks even to fully, truly become undetectable. But those are very high-risk patients for relapse, resistance, and breakthrough, and that's why you need to monitor them so very closely. Yes? Oh, I know. I'm, yeah. Um, so that's because I stacked the slides. I'm a very bad, sneaky person. Um, I, I don't know if we can. Do, do you guys have access to these things online or no? Do you guys have access to gastroenterology? If not, maybe we can, I don't know what we can do, but, um, but it's true. The slides are stacked, so when you guys just print out, you only have the, I think, the top slide. So we can talk about how to address that. That's my fault. Um, uh, well, they're all key slides. I said that you guys can include all of them. But we could sort of separate them. That's what we'll do. We'll, on the website, we'll separate them so that you can get it off the website. Thank you for bringing that up. I apologize. That's me trying to be too fancy with my transitions. Um, all right, so I think in the last t eight minutes, we're going to uh, move into the pharmacogenomic dis dis discoveries, which I think are mostly fun from a scientific standpoint. 
um, and really helps us understand some of the responses that we previously saw from the, from the, um, from the large clinical trials of PEG and RIBA. Uh, but really, the utility of uh, ITPA has, is nothing, and IL-28, I think, is becoming less so, but something for you guys to, to know. So, um, so this, I think, was a lot of fun, and maybe it's because um, this, this actually initial discovery was made at Duke uh, with my mentors, um, and so it's been a lot of fun to see this evolve. But ultimately, um, this was a genome-wide association study, meaning that they took a population of patients, they used the ideal cohort, which was a large randomized controlled trial of PEG interferon alpha 2A versus 2B. It was an only genotype 1 treatment-naive patients, and so it was a very clean population to study. They essentially um, used a, you know, a, a chip that has over 600,000 single nucleotide polymorphism changes to identify if one of those changes may be associated with a, with a chance to achieve a cure on PEG and RIBA. And what they found that was indeed there were several of them. Um, and it is now recognized, at least with PEG and RIBA, as the strongest baseline predictor of ability to achieve a cure, um, which is very exciting. And I think what is also critically important from a scientific standpoint is that this was then confirmed in a Japanese and an Australian cohort. So two completely different independent genome-wide association studies confirmed this finding, which meant it was real. I'll just take a step back and show you what this looks like. So this is called a Manhattan plot, and this is what genome-wide associated studies would present in a, in a manuscript in terms of the data that they get. This is the entire human genome right here. Um, and this shows you several little dots, single nucleotide-based pair changes that were identified as being highly, highly associated with ability to achieve a cure. Um, and you can see the p-value is 10 to the negative 28. Because of multiple testing, when you have 600,000 SNPs, your p-value to be just significant is 10 to the negative 9. Um, but this was highly significant, 10 to the negative 28. This localized to chromosome 19. And even more interestingly, all of these little base pair changes localized to the IL-28B region. IL-28 is interferon lambda. And I'm going to show you a little about what interferon lambda means. So it's very exciting because it pegged right to the, one of the very human cytokines from our innate immunity that is very in the natural response to viral infections. Influenza, um, which was very, very exciting. So if you look at what it means for a patient, um, if you are of European descent, African descent, or Latino descent, and you carried this base pair change, as a CC, so this is the recessive, you're a homozygote for the recessive, you had a two to four fold higher chance of achieving a cure on PEG and RIBA than if you didn't. And I think what is that the R squared for the model for this prediction was 0.5, meaning that this one base pair change explains 50% of the variation in response, which explains 50% of why patients of African descent did not respond as well. It also explains 50% of why patients of Asian descent responded so well. Um, and I think that is actually very, very exciting from the standpoint of understanding um, our patients on an individual level. <coughs> so this gets a little bit into the biology of it. So this is interferon alpha, which is what we currently use exogenously, but is also, again, an innate cytokine that's a critical part of our response naturally to infections. And this is interferon lambda, which is what the IL-28 is. And ultimately, you can see that regardless of which one, um, ultimately they had the same response, which is antiviral activity. Interferon lambda is now in phase three study for the treatment of hepatitis C. 
The reason it's so interesting is that, as opposed to having receptors all over the human body, like interferon alpha, it primarily has receptors um, on epithelial cells, including cells in the liver, but does not have, uh, for example, uh, receptors on the bone marrow and the bone marrow cell lines, which means you don't have all the cytopenias that interferon alpha causes. Now, it'd be very exciting if interferon was going to stay in any treatment regimen. The problem is we're slowly phasing that out as we're getting into an interferon that may actually have the same efficacy but fewer side effects. That being said, it, it, I think it's, it's very interesting from a scientific um, Four minutes left. So this, what was also interesting is that they then took this a step further, different groups, to show that if you carried this CC genotype, you also had a three-fold higher chance of spontaneously clearing the virus on your own. So you carry it, you have a better chance of spontaneously clearing the virus naturally, but then if you go on to develop chronic infection anyway, you have a better chance of being cured with interferon-based therapies. So it's, I think, very, very interesting. Um, we were able to show that this was true in co-infected patients, so this, this is the same. It has never been able to be shown that it was true in genotype 2-3 because those patients respond so well to interferon-based therapies, so that it's a still highly predictive in co-infected patients. And I think this is a really interesting map. So in green is the C allele that is the one base pair change that's associated with better response to treatment. In blue is the T allele, which is associated with better response to treatment. And as you can carrying this allele is more common on the Asian continent um, to almost 100%. Um, but if you look at the African continent, it's much less likely. So I think it shows very nicely um, the evolution of the carriage of this um, in countries, the melting pot, the United States, where we see more of a, more of a balance. Um, which is very, very interesting, and I think many people have what the underlying reason for this difference is across the globe, and, and, and may well be driven by a very, very old flavovirus um, that would have prompted this, similar to sickle cell anemia um, in patients of African descent from the African continent. Okay, so lastly is the ITPA. So this is same group, same study, now they just looked at a different outcome, anemia. Can we predict anemia in these patients, which is a very limiting side effect for many of these patients. And again, indeed, different chromosome, but the answer was yes. And it's the same story. There are actually two base pair changes. And if you carry any variation of them, you have a significantly lower risk of developing anemia. What has not panned out to be true in this case is that we have not been able to show in any way, shape, or form, in mono-infected or co-infected, that this ultimately predicts outcome. So they may have more rod barren dose reduction, but there's no difference in the ability to achieve a cure. So it's, it's interesting scientifically, but it's less clinically relevant. And again, <laughs> data that show that this was true as well in co-infected patients. All right, so in the last 48 seconds, I have two slides, just to show you that SVR matters. And I think that's actually the most important to our patients. And so this is very recent data that came out of the, um, the Johns Hopkins cohort, um, where they followed patients who were uh, who are co these are co-infected patients who were treated with therapy um, and or not treated with therapy, so they all have disease, and they follow them long-term, almost 10 years from their liver biopsies, to see if treatment makes a difference. And what you can see here is there were no severe clinical outcomes, no HCC, no death, um, no need for liver transplant, if you were an SVR or a relapser, which is very interesting. That relapse matters. So if you can remain undetectable for a year, that matters with regards to your liver health. And I think that is something that's actually very, very interesting. Um, but if you are either not treated or you have non-response, your risk of outcomes continues and your mortality, which is what this is, um, uh, declines. 
So this is what's important, is that while we use SVR12 as our marker for clinical trials, that correlates to less disease, less death, less hepatocellular carcinoma. Um, and that's this next slide, and this is actually a, a group from Spain that shows the very same thing. Again, looking at the complicated liver disease, liver death and transplant, hepatocellular carcinoma. You can see that if you were a non-responder, your risk of those go up. If you were a breakthrough or relapser, you were somewhere in between, and if you achieved a cure, you essentially were very unlikely to have those outcomes, even if you had significant fibrosis on your liver biopsy at the time of treatment. And I think with that, I will close with nine seconds to spare. One question. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, sir. Yeah, so, you know, it, it, the bottom line is they're different companies and they have different advisors and they have different reasons for choosing these things. And, um, but for whatever reason, that's how it ended up. Um, ultimately, the FDA did require telaprevir to study a lead-in phase. As part of one of their phase threes, they did study lead-in to see if indeed, because they didn't do it as part of their phase two program, whether or not there would be a benefit, and there was no benefit. There was no harm, but there was no benefit. So it was studied, and it did not was not in the package insert. So this is just, you'll find that different companies have different ways of, of designing their trials, and that's the way this came out. Any other questions? No? All right, thank you for your attention. So I think, oh, I'm sorry, yes. Yep. Yes, it's a great question. So you know, with the, so with the original models, um, we actually put them together as what we call a recessive model where we lump CTs and TTs together. Um, but if you looked at that, there is a difference. I mean, a TT has the worst chance of response, a CC has the best, but the CTs really do fall somewhere in the middle. Um, and so ultimately, uh, people started then doing these models as we move forward, you'll see some data to show that, that we look now more at even being a heterozygote map.